this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, one of the toughest questions I think we need to answer as entrepreneurs is when to sell. You know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, they equate selling their company with retirement. So if you say, hey, have you ever thought about selling your company? They'll answer, yeah, you know, you know one day I'm going to have to retire. But those two things don't actually have to be synonymous, right? You don't have to sell and retire. You can sell and go start another business, which is exactly what my next guest did. He considered his business, Birds Beware, his training wheels business. He wanted to learn about business, grow something, but ultimately it wasn't his lifetime business. He wanted to sell it, get the capital and reinvest it in another business. It's an interesting thought. And so as you go through this interview, I want you to think about in your own business, if the company you're running today is your business or is it just your training wheels business? Here's Josh Latimer. Josh Latimer, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. Thank you so much for having me. So you had a crazy company name called Birds Beware. Tell me about the business that you were in. Well, I actually left a job working for J.P. Morgan Chase as a banker at 25 years old to start a window cleaning business. And, you know, my mother wouldn't talk to me for a week because that was such an insane thing to do, of course, leaving my safe and secure job and whatnot. Uh, we named it Birds Beware because we cleaned the window so good that the poor birds would smash right into your window. And so it was just a silly, fun play on words and, you know, started extremely humbly, uh, really with nothing and kind of went from there. And did you have a passion for window cleaning? I mean, why, why window cleaning? Definitely do not have a passion for window cleaning. <laughs> I have a passion for business. And the reason I picked this business was because really three reasons. It's a, it's a repeat service. It's a niche service. And it has high margins. I mean, you're essentially selling labor with soapy water. So it's, it's just a very interesting business. And the hometown where I'm from, where we started it, I really just had that feeling that there's a big opportunity. There wasn't anybody really doing what, what we ended up doing in our area. You know, when I think of window cleaning, I think of the guys that hang off like the 40th floor of a bank tower and they're on that, that, that ladder, <laughs> or not the ladder, the, uh, what, the scaffolding, and they're hanging from the middle. Of the, is that the kind of stuff you guys did or was it more like residential? Mm -hmm. We mostly did residential, especially in the beginning. Towards the end, before I sold the company, we were about 70%, 30%. We never did high-rise, but we did big industrial stuff, You know, work for the automakers and universities and things like that. We'd go up to about four or five stories, but that was it. So if you're not doing the window cleaning, who's doing the actual cleaning of the windows? 
Well, my team. I mean, we have, you know, window cleaners, crew leaders, assistants, floaters, all kinds of weird labels for people that make your dirty glass be clean. And it's not just about the cleaning of the glass. It's really a luxury service. And so what we did, and one of the reasons we were successful is focusing on the customer experience. You know, how do you feel doing business with us? What is it like to have our team come into your home, into your bedroom? It's an intimate thing, clean everything, and then leave. And you feel like a million dollars, like you just had a $200 meal or something like that. And I think that's really what separated us was we didn't make it about the dirt on your glass. We made it about pampering you and treating you like a five-star hotel would. It's funny. So, so many companies, especially in the kind of personal service industry, the entrepreneur starts as a practitioner, right? Like they start cleaning the windows, they build up a couple of hundred thousand in revenue, and then they're, you know, hire an employee and they're trying to get out of doing the actual mm. work. In your case, it doesn't sound like that's the way you approached it. Did, did you actually do any of the cleaning of the windows in the early days or were you right into scaling this business? Well, no. I mean, like I said, it was very humble beginnings. I mean, we burned through our savings. The first year I had this company, John, we only did, I only did 24000 in revenue. We almost starved to death. It was awful. And the thing for me was I did – start out as the technician, but even from day one, I had the vision of what I was trying to do. And, you know, there's different stages and pivot points in a business where you have new challenges and things. But step one is just build a little foundation so you can even recruit a team. So I didn't go into this with, you know, a couple hundred thousand in capital and a perfect business plan. I always joke that I have a bachelor's degree in pain and a master's in suffering <laughs> because I learned a lot of this stuff the hard way in the first couple years were, were nothing impressive at all. You know, it was only until I really understood the power of systems and automation and being intentional with things, focusing on the customer experience. You know, we tripled our business that year. And from that point on, it just grew like a rocket ship. So you had automated a lot of this business. Can you give an example of some of the things that you'd automated that may be a little bit peculiar or, or something new that you, you know, that you automated? Sure, sure thing. I mean, I think there's some confusion around what systemizing and automating your business means. It's like an abstract word and it means different things to different people. So to be clear, everybody listening to this that has a business, your business is already full of systems. It's already today fully systemized. So the question isn't, should I put these things in place? The real question is, are the current systems in your business serving you well, right? So the way that you answer the phone, the way that you engage your customers, the way that you follow up after uh, doing whatever it is that you do, all those things are already happening. But what you want to do is you want to be intentional and take a, a clear look to say, okay, is this the best way? And so for us, it was all about what I called the customer life cycle, every single touch point, every opportunity we had to wow them or to serve them at a way higher level than they would ever expect. So give me an example. So for example, everything was scripted in the way that we would answer the phone. Well, we asked for referrals through our customer life cycle six times in a super specific way. When our crews would show up to the house, there's an exact thing that was said to the client right when they got there. There's a process on how they did the job itself. 50% of the way through the job, the crew leader, the guy in charge, would engage the customer again with a specific methodology. And then, then at the end, there's a way that we asked for referrals. We'd offer the customer a walk around. All those little points were clearly defined, and then we coached through them in our weekly meetings continuously. It was part of our core value as a company. So how, did, how big did you get this company before you sold it? We did just under a million the year that I sold it. And it, keep in mind, this was a seasonal business as well, because here in Michigan, we only have about eight months, about 32 weeks or so, to sell our service. Uh, the rest of the time, we're kind of frozen and hibernating in the snow. <laughs> 
brings up an interesting point. What did you do with your with your staff on those months where you couldn't clean windows? Well, we have key people, and then we'd have you know all the college kids that we would bring in and fire them up and give them you know summer work and seasonal work and things like that. So with our key people, you know, part of our you know budgeting and expense cost structure was making sure these guys were taken care of. So uh, we focused on really taking care of the, the the key people through the winter. We had little bits of revenue coming in, not profitable at all, very small, but it was enough to keep our core team together. Uh, every spring, you know, we'd have a frenzy of uh, hiring and training and onboarding and recruiting and all of that stuff. And then we'd run the season and then we'd go into the winter and then do it all over again the next year. You mentioned that the business of cleaning windows was a repeat business. Uh, in what way did it repeat? Did you have people on contracts or, I mean, people obviously need window cleaning on a regular basis, but did you, did you systematize that at all? A little bit. We didn't do contracts because honestly, with a service company like this, it's not worth anything other than a psychological you know, point possibly. Uh, but dirt, glass gets dirty again. And when you have a real relationship with people, you know, they're not going to shop. They're going to come back to you. So this is a, I think all business is built on relationships. So it repeats because we engage our customers all the time. You know, Most co- companies are transactionally minded, especially in this space. They only focus on that check, that transaction, that one-time monetary value rather than the lifetime value, rather than the relationship. So uh, I was obsessed with that. I think it's very important. And that's what generated all the repeats and all the referrals. Did you ever try to estimate the lifetime value of a single customer? I did. It's not an easy thing to do in this particular business, especially you know if you want to include referrals and things like that. But I am a little bit of a metrics junkie, uh, so I did. And you know, for us, the lifetime value of a window cleaning customer was north of five thousand uh, dollars, even though the first transaction might only be a two hundred dollar service. Um, and that is based on real data, but you know, I wouldn't say it's a rock solid for sure thing. The point is, is that it's much bigger than whatever the first transaction is. And so there is value there. So what was the trigger that got you to think about selling? I mean, you built it to 800,000. You're just on the cusp of turning a million in revenue. Why sell? Well, the funny thing is, is my business was not for sale. And me and my wife had for a couple years really felt kind of a tug in our heart that we needed to be in Costa Rica for some reason. We just couldn't shake it. We had visited several times. We wanted to do some youth ministry stuff down there. Um, But, you know, it just the timing was a little weird. And I got a call from a company in California that knew who we were. And I'm known in my space relatively well. And they wanted to buy our business. It was a strategic location. They have companies all over the, the country. And they were really serious. And so this guy flew out and we did the whole kind of started the whole process. And at first, I I didn't know if it was real or not, but it was very real. And that's what started the the wheels turning. So I didn't plan it out to sell it. It just kind of happened. It made sense at the time. And we took the deal. So you had an unsolicited offer from a company in the window cleaning business. Maybe talk a little bit about the buyer. Yeah, the buyer is a couple of brothers who are number cruncher guys. I mean, they they were business consultants in Europe. They worked for financial institutions and really, really sharp, smart guys. And they're backed by a small private equity fund. And they're trying to, you know, gobble up small family businesses, you know, a million dollars a piece or whatever uh, in that range in revenue. And then they, they, they streamline all the operations of them so that they can repackage it and sell it for a higher multiple, you know, because you can buy small businesses at one multiple, you repackage it once you get to two three, four million in EBITDA, you can, you know, have a huge spread in multiple and then they'll exit 
that's their plan anyway, to you know a different private equity fund is the idea. Very, very interesting stuff, um, but they're just trying to strategically have locations in different areas of the country that are very automated and systemized and have a solid team in place. So what was your reaction when you first got approached? I mean, describe some of the emotions that you had. Well, at first, I was skeptically optimistic. You know, I was like, well, you know, this is weird, you know, because it's a weird business that I was in. And to, to get an offer like that is is a little bit strange because the cleaning industry is a highly fragmented thing. Most people don't even consider it a real industry. You know, there's a low barrier to entry. There's thousands of little unprofessional companies all over the place. Um, so there's not like a lot of activity as far as acquisitions and stuff <laughs> in window cleaning. It's a weird thing. So at first, I was a little bit you know, cautious, but you know, I'm, I'm open-minded and I certainly wanted to talk to him. And when he actually flew out here and we met, um, I knew it was real. So I guess skeptical would be my first emotion. So he meets you. At what point does he put a number in front of you? Well, he didn't put a number in front of us until the end of the third day. So we went through some things, went through the systems, showed him the structure and the architecture of what we were doing and how it worked and everything. Um, kept it kind of on the down low from the staff and stuff. We went to lunches. We talked. We did the small talk thing. Uh, and right before he left, we started talking numbers. And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it was an interesting conversation. You know, there's definitely uh, a big gap between what we wanted and what he wanted to buy it for, which is probably normal. Uh, so we left that meeting really not sure what was going to happen. I mean, uh, how, I, Josh, how did it go? I mean, did he say, what do you want for your business? Yeah, he did. And we told him and he said, well, you know, that's <laughs> that's more than we want to pay. And I said, well, I understand that. But this is an unsolicited offer and it's a uh, rapidly growing, fully automated family business and blah, 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 blah. Made my case on, you know, why I you know, was very confident in the value. And he just wasn't sure. And, you know, and after he left and we went through some of the more uh, some some more of the financials and things, you know, he came around and we ended up making a, a, a great agreement with each other. And we talked before we hit record around multiples. So what was the multiple of profit you were hoping to get? And what was the multiple of profit he was willing to offer? Well, we wanted to get five, which is much higher than normal for this type of a business. And, and I knew that going in, but, you know, we weren't selling our business for one. Um, and, you know, he wanted to do two, two and a half, something like that. So we had a pretty big gap. You know, we ended up meeting somewhere in the middle and it, it worked out for both of us. Got it. And so take us through the next couple of steps. So you have this conversation, you say five, he says two. What do you just agree to disagree? Was there a next step where you agreed to keep talking? I mean, what, how did that go? Well, absolutely. I mean, the next step is to actually look at the financials and then start a new argument about how we even calculate earnings, <laughs> right? So, you know, there's as many opinions on how to do that as there are people. And so, because I was pretty much out of the business, um, you know, I didn't have like a, a, a salary that was really applicable. So, you know, the owner draws were really just free cash flow and earnings. So, you know, adding those back in, the depreciation, going through that was a really interesting process. And especially with, with someone like this, who's you know very sophisticated financially. And, you know, I learned a lot going through the process with these guys. Uh, and it was a, just a fascinating thing. Did you have someone to help you through that process? Well, we had our, our attorney, you know, that we've worked with, um, on several of my other businesses. Um, but you know, nothing major. I didn't have like an M and a guy or some, you know, fancy, you know, business guy, you know, it was a small family company. So we kind of navigated it ourselves. Now I have a background in finance to some degree. I had my securities licenses in my early twenties and I'm a numbers junkie. Um, 
But honestly, it was a new experience. But when you dig in and you really think about it, a lot of this stuff just makes sense once you get get into it. So when you're into the adjustments and, and, and trying to figure out what the true profitability of the company was, I mean, what were the, could you point to one thing? Again, people listening to this may be surprised that there is any sort of adjustment period where they're trying to adjust, you know, f- express the profitability in its truest way. So it would be helpful to give you, like, a, give folks an example of one issue that came up where you thought profit should be expressed in, you know, in one way, and, and he thought it should be expressed in a different way. Like, is there one sort of item you could point to where there was a difference of opinion? Yeah, there wasn't a huge difference of opinion, but there's a couple things. I guess number one would be, you know, capital expenses, some of the equipment we bought. Because we were growing really quickly, we constantly were reinvesting in scale and new vehicles and new equipment and all that kind of stuff. And it's normal to add that back into your earnings because it's a reinvestment. The other thing... um, was my own time. You know, the money I took out of the business's income, you know, how much of it was really just raw profit and how much of it was really for what I contributed. You know, I worked four or five hours a week on that business is all for the last two years I had it. We had a full management team in place. Um, and so there is a little bit of gray area there, you know, because they didn't want, I was in the office, I was there, I was working on a software company and some other things I was starting. And so trying to figure out, you know, how much do we add back into the earnings out of Josh's pay. You know, he says he's only working four or five hours. I think they were really wanting to verify that that was really the case. And so that was kind of a weird point. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. And for built to sell listeners, I mean, you're going to go through this, this process of normalizing or adjusting your EBITDA and, and the owner's salary. In other words, your you know, salary is going to be a bone of contention, right? So uh, if, if you have been paying yourself a lot and you want to make the case that that's you know a market rate for the salary that you pay yourself is actually much lower. Uh, that's going to benefit you, but a buyer may look at that and say, you know, you're you're artificially estimating or you're 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 underestimating the cost of replacing you, and and so these things can come come up in the in discussion for sure. So take us through. You're going through the ad backs discussion. Take us to the actual close. I mean, how did you guys bridge the gap between his original thinking around two times profit and and your yours around five? I mean, walk us through that negotiation. How did you guys get to to an agreement? Well, you know, just by communicating clearly, but, you know, we had an advantage because they really wanted our specific company. In fact, they've rebranded some of their other markets now with birds beware. You know, there's this big bird. And so some of our branding was part of something bigger that they wanted to do as well. And and I knew that that was the case going in. So we had a little bit of leverage there, um, not to beat them up or anything like that. Uh, but it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, once we got the letter of intent signed, uh, we went through the due diligence process, which, you know, thankfully I'm really organized with things like that. So it was very smooth and clean. All of our financials were in order. Uh, And after that, it was just a matter of closing and signing on the dotted line. The negotiation from the first time we had that dinner and we had kind of a difference of opinion, um, he he went back and talked to his partners. They decided they wanted the thing. And so they came back more aggressively uh, and met us much, much closer to where we wanted to be. So it wasn't like a big, huge, stressful thing. It was a very interesting thing. Uh, I learned a lot going through it. And in the end, it turned out great. Were you bluffing? I mean, psychologically, were you, by the time you'd sort of, you'd had your first uh, meeting with this guy, did you, were you pretty committed to selling and and just trying to juice the price or or did you feel like you could walk away at any time? I felt like I could walk away in the beginning, you know, but when he flew back to California, I started thinking, man, 
you know, I could really do this. I can, I can finally go to Costa Rica. I can do all the, I can focus on my software company. I could really, man. And I started to want it more <laughs> as I thought about it. But when he was here, it happened so quickly. I was much more firm and confident in the, what we had. And I, the business didn't require a lot from me. So I wasn't that motivated to sell it. Uh, but after really thinking about it, I did want it more. So I, I did have to kind of play it cool a little bit the, the next few meetings we had. Uh, and luckily it, they didn't call me out on it because I probably would have sold it for a little bit less. Yeah, and I think that's pretty common as you get into it. And, and it's also a factor of time, right? So the more you invest in uh, you know, putting together all the materials, going through due diligence, I mean, you're more and more emotionally invested to the point where a lot of times a deal will, will actually shrink between letter of intent and closing because the buyer knows that you're emotionally committed. I mean, in your case, was there any, any monkey business between the letter of intent and the closing date? Uh, they tried a little bit. I mean, some of these guys are pretty sophisticated. They're a higher level than I am. You know, one of their backers is a really fancy business attorney from Boston, real hardcore guy. So they tried to throw in some clawback clauses and, and do some things where, you know, a portion of our payout would be based on future this and that. And without getting too in the weeds on that, you know, we did have to go through that. And they, they, it's funny how they can slip things in. Um, that seems so innocent, but if you're really not paying attention, if you don't have your attorney really digging into it, and if you don't read it seven times, uh, it's very easy to make a mistake that you'll regret later. So luckily that didn't happen. We got that stuff taken care of uh, and ended up sticking to our original deal. But yeah, I think a little bit of pivoting was going on there at the end, trying to maximize their value. Can you give us an example of something that they tried to slip in that, that would just help our, our listeners understand the kinds of things to look out for? Sure, absolutely. I mean, the structure wasn't all cash. So it's typical, especially in the service business, it was mostly cash down, which was great. Uh, but then we had a royalty payout that lasted you know, 18 months. We're actually still finishing that out. It's almost done now. And so the royalty, what they try to do is separate, um, you know, how do I put this? Um, they wanted to only pay the royalty based on future sales of a portion of the clients. For example, if they get new clients, they don't want to pay the royalty on that. They want to pay on just your existing book. And you know, even calculating that can be an administrative nightmare, depending on what kind of software you use. But you know, we were on such a growth trajectory that I wasn't comfortable with it because we had major contracts and relationships in place with huge auto suppliers. Our company was getting ready to double anyway. And so there's always this gap between buyer and seller where the seller is trying to get more money because, oh, but but the business is going to be this big next year. And of course, the buyer saying, no, we're going to pay on what you've done already. Well, there's truth in both of that. And in our case, we had a lot of really big stuff laying on our plate that we were going to close regardless if they bought it or not. So uh, what happened was they wanted you know to pay us the royalty on what we'd accomplished so far. And we put our foot down and said, no way, no way. These, these things are too big. You know, we had several, you know, $100,000 worth of future business with some new automaker clients just ready to go. So what we ended up doing in the end was we agreed to manage that relationship going forward, still get paid on the full amount. And so for a few uh, months after we sold, we took care of that, made sure that that stuff happened, and then got paid the full amount. And were you in working in the business during the period after you'd sold it? My business partner handled that one account, and for me, because I, you know, I have three kids, I have four kids, and my wife was pregnant when we sold it. We were getting ready. We had to sell our house, sell our stuff, move to Costa Rica. We had a baby in Costa Rica. Because that was going on, I was really kind of out the day that we closed. You know, I was I was out of there, and I was focused on the other stuff. And my business partner took care of uh, the contracts with the uh, 
the, the big account that we're working. So talk about Costa Rica. I mean, you, you mentioned that it was something that was you were keen on doing. Um, t- talk a little bit about why Costa Rica. I mean, I think a lot of people envision, you know, selling and going to a, a desert island somewhere for a while. But in your case, you actually did it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a crazy journey and I'm coming up on the one year mark there uh, in a couple weeks here. And I'll tell you, my biggest why you know, the thing that makes my stomach hurt, I want it so bad, even to this day, is to be free. I want freedom. I'm not particularly money motivated. I think money's a tool. I think it's interesting. It's like a game of Monopoly in real life. But I like time. I like being a dad. I like going on date night with my wife. And having location freedom and true time freedom absolutely does it for me. And so being down there, if I have internet connection, I can work from anywhere in the world. And it's truly an amazing thing because John, I am not a fancy guy. I don't have all these answers. I'm not some sophisticated hotshot. I'm a kid from Flint, Michigan, who had absolutely nothing growing up. I'm the first entrepreneur in my family. And so I appreciate and I'm thankful for everything we've been able to do. And even today, after a year, I still wake up with the palm trees and the monkeys in my backyard by the pool and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done this. I can't believe I squeegeed a window and now I'm here doing this. I mean, it's truly amazing. And it's just, I'm just very thankful. What's been the toughest part about moving to Costa Rica? Oh, cultural differences. Everything is so different culturally. You know, I see opportunity everywhere. And I know that you do. People like us, we're, we're idea factories. And so as I meet the Costa Rican people as a business person, and, you know, we should do this. And why isn't this type of business here? And, and what? tell me the story on this. It's a very non-entrepreneurial culture. It's very interesting. It's a fully socialized system down there. There's no middle class. There's, there's the people that own all the land and have the money and then everybody else. And people are terrified to take risks. Uh, it's really not an option for most people. And it's, it's, it's sad to me in a way because it's like, you know, pull yourself together. There's so much opportunity, but they just don't see it that way. And, uh, but they're family oriented, loving people. They have a great culture in that regard, but financially, Everything's a mess. The infrastructure's broken. There's lots of corruption in the government. And it's just weird to see it. And you know, I'm not a world traveler, so we haven't done this before. And so it's really opening my eyes to how blessed we are being in the States. How long do you expect to stay there? I don't know. Actually, that's kind of on the table right now. We're trying to figure that out. We were considering living uh, there half the year and in Michigan half the year. Uh, but we're probably going to be there at least another year. You know, it just depends. We're very flexible. It's more of an elastic decision-making process. It's been really cool for our kids to learn Spanish and to experience different cultures. Uh, so we're not in a rush to leave, uh, but we do miss home as well. As you look back on the Birds Beware sort of story, right from the start, to the sale, to then the post trip to Costa Rica. I mean, what one thing might you do differently if you had it all over to do again? I'll tell you, there is something I would do differently. And I would not have ran right out of there the day that we closed that deal as quickly as I did. I really wish in hindsight, I would have invested more in the general manager of the company you know, the guy who I hired was my second hire ever who rose to the ranks and ended up running the whole business. I wish I would have stayed there and really made sure he was equipped because I'm a passionate person. I was the guy, even though I worked five hours a week, I, I would cast vision and I'm a dreamer. And I would invest in people. I'm huge on company culture and really loving and caring for people. I don't think he was well prepared for that side of it. Uh, he knew the business, but the leadership side, the passion side, the pushing, the, that stuff was really evaporated the moment that I left. And in hindsight, when I look back, there was a major deterioration in that area. And I think I could have helped a lot if I would have spent 60 days more making sure uh, that I really helped him 
with that. How did you tell the employees that you sold Birds Beware? Well, that was awkward um, <laughs> because we were so big on we're a family. This is a fa- this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do this. And there's all this opportunity. You know, I always was casting vision. Nobody saw it coming. People were very hurt and upset. They got through it. You know, I went to lunch individually with all the key leaders um, that worked with us. And then I made an announcement to the company as a group, uh, kind of after I got the blessing of the key leaders. That was kind of my strategy. And, and it worked, but it, it was a tough thing. It was an emotional thing, too. Did you share any of the proceeds of the sale with the team? No, we did not. And so when you think about doing that over again, the, the way you communicated to the team, would there be anything that you might coach other entrepreneurs to do, maybe learn from your experience? In regards to actually after you're selling or announcing to the team, you mean? Really about the, the announcing to the team and, and dealing with the team's kind of emotions uh, when they hear that you've sold your company. Man, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing that, that helped us was that we had a high level of buy-in from our staff. I never treated the people that worked with me as you know my subject and I'm their manager. That's just completely contrary to everything I'm about. So even though they were upset, they were on board with what the future could hold. I sold them on this new company and all the capital resources they had to grow even quicker than we were and really tried to refire them up. So it was emotional. They're upset, but they stayed with the company. They've been continuing to grow the company and everything's worked. So I think it was the, the previous existing relationship I had with them that really helped hold it together. You know, one of the things I know about you, I mean, maybe take a second, Josh, uh, and just describe what you're up to now in terms of the other businesses that you've got going. And then I've got a sort of follow-on question, but tell, tell us what you're doing now. I mean, I don't think you're just surfing in Costa Rica, right? No, I'm actually a terrible surfer, although my, my nine-year-old is pretty good. I mean, for a beginner gringo, I guess. Um, no, I, I work really hard still. And it's interesting because the destination is never as glorious as you think. You know, even Costa Rica or selling a business, you think that someday if I can just get here, then, then I can say I've done it. And it just isn't like that. You're always on to the next thing. And as entrepreneurs, I think we enjoy the grind a little bit. So I started a software company uh, a couple years ago, and that's my full-time focus now. It's called sendgym.com. And we help other small businesses all over the country um, automate their follow-up and, and get new customers using a mobile app. It sends postcards and emails and letters and gifts and all kinds of things from your phone. And, and it's just a very unique, very original marketing method. We actually spent 50000 developing that app originally just to use in our own company. And then it kind of took on a life of its own. So that's my core business now. I love that I can work anywhere in the world. My team is remote. I have designers in Ireland and Minnesota. I have a tech guy in Arkansas and my partner's in Michigan. And we're all spread out. I have a couple people in Costa Rica. Uh, it's been a wild ride. And I'm kind of starting over. You know, I'm going to try to go through the same cycle, except with a completely different model. Because I think, here's my question. A lot of people, I think, would listen to your story and say, wow, he, he sounds like Birds Beware was an amazing uh, startup, had, had achieved a modicum of success with $800,000 in sales on the way to doubling the next year. Um, some people would have been like, Josh, stick it out. Make it an $8 million company before you want to sell it. Talk to us about the thinking you went through your mind about, about whether you wanted to sell at such an early stage, frankly, relative to the other you know, approach you could have taken, which would have been to, to sort of grow it for another 20 years. Well, there's, there's a lot of factors there and it starts with your why, you know, there is no wrong 
why for any person in business. I work with people that have a $200,000 business. They make 50 grand a year. They love it. It's it, They're happy, right? So isn't that really the point? I mean, 10 out of 10 people died, John, and we, we don't get to take our toys with us. So it wasn't a strictly financial decision. For me, I'm passionate about building stuff. I think it's fascinating to build a machine and to put a dollar in the top and $2 come out the bottom. It's, it's a big game to me. Yes, it's stressful. Yes, I freak out sometimes, but I love it. And so for me, the cleaning business was my training wheels business. And there's honestly a lot more upside with what I'm doing now. I can grow it a lot faster and sell it for a 10 or 20 multiple because it's a software as a service. It's a totally different game. So there's a lot of things I want to accomplish in multiple spaces by the time I leave this planet. And it's not about making money. It's about building things, investing in people, leaving a legacy, and really for my children to watch their father take intelligent risk and and try to win at life. How important is it that your kids see you as an entrepreneur? I mean, do you use the businesses that you own as little incubation centers for them to learn about about business? Absolutely. And it's nonstop conversation in our house. And it's not about pushing them to do what I want them to do. It's about educating them in finance the way that normal, especially um, high school, can never even come close to. My nine-year-old son started his first business when he was seven. I gave him a $500 loan. We bought five little candy machines. I made him memorize a script. He was crying because it was so hard, but he stuck through it. And he cold solicited these businesses, walked in there by himself, asked for the manager read his script, got his candy machines placed, and was making $100 a month in quarters on his machines. And then he actually sold that business. And I'll tell you something, every Monday when we had put on his little work shirt and his work hat, and I would drive him around to his candy machines, he didn't want to do it. He's a kid. He's like, oh, I got to go get my quarters. But he sold the business to some other kids for $1,200. And the day that we did that, I made him sign a little <laughs> like purchase agreement and everything and you know asset purchase agreement. It was hilarious, but he wore his tie, he signed the paper and the permagrin on his face was unbelievable. It was like a lifelong light bulb went off on his head. And you know that kind of thing is extremely powerful and financial education is critical and it's our job as fathers to provide that to our family. Josh, where do people reach you? They can reach me um, at automategrowcell.com. Or they can go to thegrowthvault.com. The Growth Vault is just a place where there's free webinars, trainings, teachings, other interviews I've done, just teaching about the things I'm passionate about. If you have a business that is in alignment with what we've talked about, there's a lot of free resources in there you can check out. Josh Latimer, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.